This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am here as usual with my good friends Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor. And we thought it would be worthwhile to do an abbreviated episode for you and take a few minutes for the three of us to reflect a bit on the life and ministry of J.I. Packer. We've all benefited from his books and to one degree or another, even his personal influence. So I think safe to say Justin certainly has had the most interaction. I've had very little uh, other than through his writing. And so, Justin, why don't we start with you? Uh, Walk us through a little bit of J.I. Packer's life and ministry. Go ahead, and we welcome a brief monologue to fill us in on some of the details and some of the history of this remarkable man and his remarkable life. Sure. He was uh, born James N.L. Packer uh, 94 years ago, July of 1926, in England. And his family, uh, by his own admission, was rather unremarkable. They were a lower middle class uh Anglicans but and church going, but didn't even really pray together at meals, so they were a nominal Anglican family. Uh, kind of the, the beginning of the Packer story is with his uh, head injury. If you've ever heard him tell anything about his life, it uh, always goes back to when he was seven years old and uh, in uh, junior school and uh, chased by a kind of a bully outside of school, goes into the street, gets hit by a bread van, kind of a headlong collision. And uh, fortunately, there was a surgeon in the area who had uh, trained in how to do this sort of brain surgery, but his his cranium was uh, depressed and he had a chunk of skull missing. Uh, fortunately, the Surgery was successful. He had uh, damage to his frontal lobe, but obviously it didn't affect his speech or his intelligence. He had to wear this kind of aluminum plate over his head for several years, which uh, made uh, a young boy who was already a loner even more ostracized from social things, uh, but loved reading, loved writing. Uh 11-year-old boys in that uh, time period in that country were uh, kind of received bicycles on Christmas as sort of a coming-of-age present. Um, Sorry, not for Christmas, but for their 11th birthday. And Packer had kind of dropped hints to his family that he would like one. And uh, he tells the story of kind of coming down on the morning of his birthday and finding uh, an old typewriter under the uh, the <laughs> table rather than the bicycle that he was expecting. And, you know, he's, he's crestfallen, but he said it was really a prophetic, beautiful, brilliant gift from his parents who could foresee that uh, oh, a boy good. like him would uh, benefit more from a typewriter than from a bicycle. Um, what, uh, what part of, did you say what city in England? I might miss that. Uh, he's in, it was in north of Gloucestershire, uh, Twining. So kind of okay. Yeah. Not a big maybe, city. Yeah. 60 miles, maybe west of, uh, Oxford around that area. Okay. Okay. So gets the typewriter. Uh, gets my, my typewriter. kids would not have responded as graciously, <laughs> but they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And it was not a new typewriter either. It was an old typewriter. So it, it lasted like six or seven years, but he really, uh, until he was no longer able to uh, physically type, he, he never transitioned to word processors. He always typed on a typewriter. 
Uh, but he's confirmed in the Anglican Church, the local Anglican Church, St. Catherine's, at the age of 14. He he said he was confirmed and had never even heard the word conversion and didn't know what it meant. Uh, then at age 18, he wins a scholarship to Oxford University. His dad was a clerk at the Great uh, Railroad Station, Great Western Railroad uh, Station. And uh, so he got a free ticket, arrives on campus, basically one suitcase in hand. He, he says he was awkward, shy. He was an oddball. Uh, but he gets there, and three weeks later, uh, to make a long story short, he was converted. Um, he listens to an old Anglican clergy member give an evangelistic address, kind of unimpressed with it, but the guy started to talk about his own camp experience growing up and what Jesus meant to him. And uh, Packer's listening, thinking, do I really know Christ? And at the end of this address, they sing, just as I am, and uh, Packer gave his life to Christ. He said, you know, I, I came into the church uh, an unbeliever and I walked out knowing uh, Jesus Christ and I was a, a Christian. The, the next big thing that happens at Oxford is that another Anglican clergyman, it's interesting how these kind of older Anglican men have an impact in Packer's story, uh, donates his old library of 16th, 17th century books to the Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union there on campus. And they know that Packer's this uh, kind of an intellectual bookworm. They say, hey, you want to go th sort through all of that and uh, help us out? Packer does it, and his eyes come across uh, the works of John Owen. The volumes were uncut, meaning nobody had ever actually opened them. Packer notices the volume on sin and on temptation, cuts them open, starts to read, and basically is is never the same again. He'd he'd been caught up in uh, higher life theology, uh, kind of a deficient view of sanctification, was struggling with his own sin, indwelling sin, and just feels like that that ended up changing his life. It changed the direction of his theology, of his spirituality. He went on to do a doctorate at Oxford on Richard Baxter, who was a contemporary of Owen, and really thought of himself as sort of a latter-day Puritan, like a, a man born out of place. And if you have read his writings, if you've ever uh, seen him speak, it is like a man coming out of another century. Um, ended up writing his first book uh, at the age of 31, Fundamentalism in Quotes and the Word of God, that Erdman's published on Still the authority. Good book. I mean, yeah. It, it it, it was it was a piece for its a track for its times, and yet you can still read it quite profitably. And you can't say that a lot. A lot of books written in the 1950s that were seeking to be contemporary, but Packer's always trying to to speak to the modern issues, but drawing from the wisdom of the past, which I think gives his books a a real timeless quality to them. Um, married Kit Mullet, who uh, is a Welsh woman, uh, they adopted three uh, children together. Interesting story about Knowing God, which of course is his most famous book. Um, a woman asked him in the 1960s if he would do a series of articles for this bi-monthly evangelical magazine. That was the name of the evangelical magazine, um, just on the Christian life and what it means to know God. And he, he kind of took that as assignment and wrote what would become a chapter as just an article at a time. Um, and then he approached IVP over in the UK and said, hey, would you be interested in, in doing this as a book? It took him like five years to write it because he was just doing a chapter every other month. And they said that they really wanted a book on the charismatic issue in Great Britain. They wanted him to do that first and wouldn't accept a book on any other topic. So 
he said, okay, and uh, went over to Hodder and Stoughton, and they mm-hmm. published it. Um, so IVP UK, I'm sure, ruse that decision to this <laughs> yeah. day. Uh, our university press in uh, Downers Grove ended up picking it up in, in 1973. So the U.S. version mm-hmm. that uh, we've all read and benefited from um, comes from that time period back in the early 70s. Um, so did he? was that keep in step with the spirit then that he did write? Them in the charismatic, or did that yeah, come I think later? That ended up being his contribution later. Yeah. Okay. Little known fact that uh, when when I was at uh, East Lansing, and uh, it's not that little known, but Kirk Cousins for a time went to our church, and there was some connections with football people, and so I met with him for a year or two, and we read some books together, and I read through Knowing God with Kirk Cousins. <laughs> So any Vikings the ranch fans, spokesman, was, Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading through that book with him. Actually, it wasn't at the pizza ranch. It was at the pizza house in <laughs> uh, East, East Lansing. And just to tell you about the NCAA, he, he was very particular. And he said, you really, because, you know, I'm taking out a college student, so I'm going to pay for him. And he just said, no, nah, you, you just, you just probably do shouldn't that. do that. <laughs> I don't even know if you should be able to give me a book. I mean, it's just weird, but wow. just, you know, Packer would have never known where that yeah. book would have gone. Wow. So Justin, the give bet, us, I know it would have been a better story if uh, Kirk had been suspended for like the entire season because you bought him cactus bread. <laughs> and he, yeah, he had to sit out a season for reading, knowing God gifted Over to cactus him bread. by Jack a pastor. Yeah. So when did he come to, I was going to say the States, but he came to Canada. Yeah, he, you know, he was most popular in the United States, but he never uh, dwelt in the U.S. He came to North America, of course, 1979. So in, in the 50s and the 1970s, he had been serving at Tyndale House and Cambridge and Trinity College and Bristol and Latimer House and Oxford. He never had these kind of big prominent uh academic appointments. But in 1979, James Houston, who was an old friend of his, going back to their undergrad days at Oxford, uh, asked him if he would consider coming over and joining the faculty at, at Regent College in Vancouver. Um, so there was, you know, it was not an easy decision to make, but he made that decision and uh, never went back to live full-time in England and uh, basically made made the journey. Was that uh, decision, so- Justin, made easier by the divisions within the evangelical church in the UK? At the time? I think so. I think he was ready for a change, but I think he also, uh, you know, there's backstory to all these things and probably things we don't even know, but I think that there was a tension and rifts and, uh, you know, perhaps he wasn't getting fully the recognition that he thought he deserved, or maybe he just wanted a fresh start. But I think Regent looked like an attractive option for him to be able to teach, to be able to write, to be able to travel. Um, So... Yeah, there's there's a story there in a backstory that I don't know all of the ins and outs of it. And when did he leave the the Anglican Church? Uh, the Anglican, I th- I think it was in nineteen. Um, I think it was in 2008 that he was actually suspended right. from the Canadian Anglican Church. Yeah, um, I shouldn't have said the Anglican Church altogether. Yeah, so he was part of an Anglican diocese in Vancouver that in 2008 suspended him and the church for uh, the gay issue, the gay way, as he called it. Um, 
So that was, I think, a painful part of his life. We tend to think of him as an evangelical, and of course he was, and he, he talked about Anglicanism as being him, himself an evangelical Anglican and really stressed the evangelical part of it. But all through his story, from when he was being raised to his education, to his uh, associations, all the way along, it's really an important part of his story that he is an Anglican churchman. So the fact that uh, the Anglican Church of Canada basically gave him and his church the boot because of their biblical fidelity it is a sad part of his story, um, sad for him. Um, I think the Lord continued to bless him and his faithfulness there. But, um, yeah, that's something I think evangelicals can kind of skim over that. You know, oh, yeah, that was kind of a, a technical thing. But I think for him it was a very personal and difficult thing. And, and he continued to write then for many years. Yeah, he never produced his uh, systematic theology, which he really had a, a heart and a dream to do a lay-level systematic theology for God's people. I think the closest he came to that is the Concise Theology, uh, which was uh, published. Crossway is going to actually do a hardcover version of that, uh, where it's, it's Packer at his most brilliant because he's basically doing a doctrine in just a, a page or two. Um, in some ways, I think it's easier to write a 50-page chapter on uh, doctrine than it is to write a one or two page. But yeah, he continued to write on Ryle. Uh, he, he especially focused in his latter years on catechesis or catechism. He kind of called it Packer's Last Crusade, really wanting the church to catechize the next generation. And not just in, in terms of question-answer format, but but discipling, uh, teaching the church sound doctrine and, and spirituality. Um, he thought of uh, the, the evangelical, um, sorry, the, the English Standard Version as his greatest contribution to the kingdom, which for us at Crossway is really a humbling thing to, to hear. But he thought that that was uh, perhaps the most significant kingdom labor that he accomplished in all of his decades of life. Well, you, you could... You could certainly make a good case for that. What what we talked about uh, knowing God, of course, is the most well known book. But I'm curious for each of you, what's after that? What what's been the most influential book of Packers in your life? And I, I'll jump in because I don't want you to take mine. Uh, I've read not not all of them, but a good deal of them. And certainly, you know, after knowing God, or maybe even above that for me, is Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life, which is a series of articles and essays he wrote that then uh, put together. Crossway book, right, Justin? Yep. Uh, in the version. Yeah, in the U.S. version. And it just, I mean, it's, it, again, it's Packer at his best, uh, maybe a, a bit more... Uh, academic than some of his other works, but really well done, well researched, of course, always well written. And without doing descending into hagiography on the Puritans, that they got everything right and they were the golden age, just, just a, a wonderful job in that book of detailing different aspects, not only their theology, but life and marriage and how they thought of uh, Christian discipleship and doing it in a way that brings to bear the best of the Puritans in our lives and is, uh, you know, intellectually responsible and yet inspiring for the Christian. And that's what I, I think Packer did so well. I mean, I read that years ago, maybe early in ministry and uh, have gone back to it often. Uh, Colin, what would you say is top on your Packer book list? 
I'm holding up Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, a remarkably clear, uh, compelling book that I've found not only helpful in my own life, in my writing and teaching on Reformed theology, but you know, I came out of a background that uh, within crew always combined, had a lot of evangelistic fervor, and I came up through an environment that also emphasized Reformed theology. And so I've never really had attention or I've never seen attention. Also, when you study Whitfield, you study Edwards, and you study uh, all these folks, you don't know that there's attention. But I've found that Packer's book is the most helpful place for other people to be able to pick up some of the basics. I just remember a couple things from it, especially his teaching on prayer, that when it comes to prayer and evangelism, everybody's Reformed. We all pray that God would open the eyes of our loved ones and our neighbors to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love the way, this is typical Packer, the way he closes evangelism and the sovereignty of God. He says, we would not wish to say that man cannot evangelize at all without coming to terms with this doctrine, but we venture to think that other things being equal, he will be able to evangelize better for believing it. Convicted as a reformed evangelical Anglican, but not somebody who was adamant about dividing the church. And I think some people would criticize him for that when it comes to evangelicals and Catholics together. But again, that was Packer, who was always true to sort of a, a little bit more of an Anglican ecumenical vision than some Reformed people would like. Um, but again, also, I think it shines through in a really positive way in his defense of Reformed theology and evangelism in this book. Right. He could sign e- ECT and the statement against ECT. <laughs> <laughs> Confusing. Uh, Justin, what what are one or two of your favorites? Did we steal them already? No, I actually have not read through Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, though I've heard of it for many years. Oh, yeah, you got to do that. It'll be quick. Uh, It'll be great. Quest for Godliness, I mean, I think it would be at the top of my list. There's another one that was less known, uh, knowing, uh, was it knowing Christianity that was kind of a three books in one, basically on the Lord's prayer, uh, the apostles created the 10 commandments at Crossway. We published the, the North American version, and then we broke them up into three little books and they're beautiful little books, but maybe I'll choose for my answer uh, besides concise theology. I'll just start listing them all. <laughs> uh, but the, the death of death and the death of Christ, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that wasn't a full length book. But when I was kind of learning about reformed soteriology in college and debating predestination, that is an introduction to John Owen's Death to Death and Death of Christ, which it's is more well known than Owen's book itself. <laughs> Nobody true. actually goes on and reads Owen, but they read Packer <laughs> and think that they've, they, they know what Owen's arguing. Uh, but I mean, there's Packer and his kind of reformed soteriological glory with, uh, you know, kindly willing to throw some punches and to, to define his terms and uh, to say Arminianism is not biblical and it does not glorify God and salvation is of the Lord. So reading that as a 20-something college student, that was influential and uh, made an impact on me. I really liked uh, an, a lesser-known one, Rediscovering Holiness. I'm not sure if probably the version I was reading 10 years ago was republished. I'm not sure if it came out earlier than that, but when I was doing my inferior book on holiness, I always tell people, read J- if you're going to read one, you know, read J.C. Ryle on holiness before you read Kevin DeYoung, but uh, reading through Packer, and of course, he he did so much to take the best of 
J.C. Ryle and those insights, and you, they had some similar inclinations. And so much of Ryle's book on holiness was counteracting the beginning of the, the Keswick movement and higher life, which played an important part in Packer's bi uh, biography. So you can see why why they would resonate there. But that was a really good book. And you mentioned, Justin, later in life is emphasis on catechesis and uh, going through and championing the the best of, whether it's the Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, just teaching people and our children and new believers the basics of our faith in, in a very simple yet uh, thoughtful way is really the legacy of J.I. Packer, and we've all benefited from it. I, I wonder, Colin, did you, uh, we can come back to books. I probably, I know I've forgotten a bunch of them, but Colin, uh, I want to ask Justin this, but I know he's going to have more to say than the two of us. Did you meet J.I. Packer? Do you have any personal J.I. Packer stories? More than you realize, Kevin. Really? Do you not remember how we would have intersected? Think about this. Yeah, you're Packer quizzing. kind of thinks of Colin as a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> It's always really no Christianity Today. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. So when I was when I was before I went to work for Christianity Today, it was um, I mean the masthead was yeah. Timothy George, J.I. Packer, Thomas Oden, and now serving on the advisory board for Beeson Divinity School and being next door and having an office there. Of course, Timothy George has been a huge influence in my life, but then of course it was J.I. Packer there and so he would visit at least once if not twice a year he'd come down justin of course these were tied with your guys's meetings at crossway usually um, because those are i mean the two office buildings are within a couple miles of each other and so he would come down and this was the key kevin he was by himself staying in the holiday inn in carroll stream illinois in case you're wondering where it is it's it's behind the white castle so he was Just probably the, filling up one of those plastic cups of um, <laughs> waffle batter right. over in the morning. Dumping them, just taking, taking care of his own waffles. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, to, to have some like this evangelical Titan and he's there. It, I mean, it's basically the only place you could stay that was near the office at Christianity Today. And so every night, though, he, I mean, you just have a, he, he'd be there for a whole week for Christianity Today, reading through, marking up articles, giving lectures. And a whole week it was like, well, his calendar is wide open for dinner. If anybody wants to take him out, you can take him out and Christianity Today will pay for it. Good so deal. I did this as many times as possible. And we'd go to the Indian place where it was never hot enough for J.I. Packer. Really? I don't think he had taste buds anymore. <laughs> it's never hot enough. I will jump in with one anecdote yeah, of the I knew last Justin time would jump here. <laughs> that I saw him was in Vancouver. And I don't want to derail you, Colin, so I can let you get back to your No, White go Castle. ahead. I know this story. Go ahead. Your your White Castle dates with Jan Packer. <laughs> I never uh, took no. him to White Castle, to okay. be clear. Go ahead. Hey, Christian, today is paying for it. I might as well take him to a nice place. <laughs> might as well get some sliders. <laughs> Uh, so I, I traveled up to Vancouver to see if we could finally wrangle in this last book that he wanted to write, which is on the Anglican heritage, which I'm very pleased to say Crossway is going to be able to publish it, Lord willing, in 2021. Uh, his wife read aloud to him the, the final manuscript, and he made verbal edits You know when his eyesight was unable to uh, edit in person anymore. 
But I went up there and spent a whole day with him and we went to an Indian restaurant because I was told that that is his favorite food to eat. And when the waiter said, uh, you know, would you like it uh, mild or medium or hot? And he said, I will take it as hot as your conscience allows. <laughs> so the man, somebody told me that when he's traveled in foreign countries, they are amazed at Packer's capacity for spice. Uh, he I likes can, food like he likes his Calvinist soteriology. That's right. Hot and it spice. was, I mean, these, just to remember, I'm basically 23 years old at the time, 24 years old newly married, and I've got friends still in college or friends in ministry. So I'd invite them out. I'm like, hey, guess what? We're going to dinner with J.I. Packer. So one one of our friends, she's gone on. She did a degree at Oxford in apologetics. She's married to an Anglican pastor now in the UK. She came to one of them. Another one of my friends who went to be a pastor up in North Dakota, he came to one of those. So it was just open time to ask any questions of Packer. And you can imagine what kind of like formative effect that would have had on me and my wife. But then also one the one other thing that I, I share about him is early on, my first job at Christianity Today was to help to write a book about Billy Graham. And so we interviewed Packer on one of these visits, and he was sitting in this little office that would later become my office. At the time it was vacant. He's just sitting there, you know, and not again, they, the Christian today office is not behind the white castle. It's behind the Culver's now. So again, just imagine, yeah, step up, step up for sure. Um, and he's just sitting there marking and we're interviewing him and it's like one o'clock and, and, you know, he just, he, he keeps falling his, his, I mean, his, his head just keeps drooping and drooping and drooping. And I keep asking questions thinking, what am I doing wrong here? This guy literally, I mean, is there a time when J.F. Packer has not been old, you know, not looked old? <laughs> I imagine when he was young, he looked old, but he's just, he's just drooping there. And then finally, I'm like, I look at my colleague who's interviewing and I say, I think he just fell asleep on us. And then there Packer snaps up. I'm listening. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, oh, sorry. Never mind. And so just brilliant insights. But it was fun to be able to have known him on a personal level and to have and just and just to see these offbeat moments where he would deign to spend time with these young people who didn't know any better at random restaurants in the suburbs of Chicago. What a man. I only met him one time and then we'll ask Justin to fill in much more. It was at the the ill-fated Dallas Book Expo. Oh, no. Oh, no. Reserved like a hundred thousand seats oh, no. to come in, and there were, I mean, literally doing doing debates in symposium and cavernous halls that would seat three thousand, and there were twenty people to listen to me and Mark Galley talk about the emergent church. In a hundred, in in ten years, Kevin, it will have been seats for five hundred thousand people. It just keeps, the number keeps growing. Bigger, I, think but, the, I think the twenty is exaggerated. Yes. Yes. There, yeah, there weren't actually twenty people. There oh, were few. Exaggerating. Yes. Uh, J.I. Packer was there. Felt bad that he was there. We all felt bad that we were there. But um, I was doing stuff on the emergent church, and uh, you know, someone from Moody said, oh, "I really, you know, want you to meet 
J.I. or Dr. Packer, and I'm sure he's going to want to meet you, which I'm sure he didn't know who I was or wasn't that <laughs> interested in meeting me. So I went up and said a few things, and I wish I could do his uh, his British accent well. But they said, oh, this is Kevin DeYoung. He's written this book on the emergent church, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, oh, yes, there are many ways in which one may deviate from the true path of Christian faith, and the emergent church has certainly found one of them. <laughs> and that was about it. And I just thought if, if that could have been a blurb on the book, it would be great. Justin, did he did he read all the books that he blurbed? Did you ever talk to him about his thinking in blurbing so many books? I mean, very generous, but did he have a a, a, a vision in why he did that? Yeah. Yeah, I did ask him about that once, and uh, apparently he was at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando at one time, and, and some student walked up to him and said, Dr. Packer, do you actually read those books? And just looked at him. And Packer never responded anything like quickly. Everything was just this slow, deliberate, and so he said, young man, what are you saying about my integrity? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, sorry for asking that little question. Uh <laughs> So I think he he said once that he would often read the first sentence of every paragraph in a book. I so heard him say that too. You know, if you do that, you can uh, get the main idea. You get the argument. It's more than just reading the beginning and the end of a chapter. If you're going to work through the whole book, I think that he saw it as I asked him once actually about it, and I wish I could, of course, remember his exact answer. But I said something like, "Was it?" an act in your mind of, of love, of generosity for younger scholars and pastors, uh, authors who didn't have your platform, but um, could rely upon it or something like that. And he said, no, that's not what I was doing. So he always gave like a 10 minute answer to any simple question, but that's true. I think he really saw it as an act of love for the reader itself and not as much as an encouragement for the author, but his whole life was about discipleship about nurturing people in the faith and pointing them to good resources. And, you know, I do think there were, there are a number of books that I think, I'm not sure that I think your overly generous spirit there <laughs> may have been a little overactive on that one, or, or perhaps the devil is in some of the, the middle sentences of the paragraphs. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. That you blurbed, but yeah, I think he saw it as a way to kind of love the church and point to good books. Justin, as we wrap this up, just, you know, your time over the years and certainly working in the ESV and other projects, I mean, what, what was J.I. Packer like, the, the man, the Christian, the, the godly giant? We, like anyone, had clay feet and idiosyncrasies, but as far as, as, as I can tell, you know, those clay feet were of a very ordinary sort of variety and really was a man of some singular talents and worth imitating. What can you just tell us about getting to know him as a man and a Christian over the years? Yeah, he really was, I think, a great man. And he did have his failings and things that we would disagree on him with. But he he was a, a beautiful soul. I, I don't mean that to sound cliche. Um, I, I remember walking away from meeting with him and thinking, each time I'm with this man, I want to be more like Christ. And I don't think I want to be more like J.I. Packer. Or I'm in awe of, of this great theologian. He was a, a humble man uh, who w had 
no false modesty about him. He was honest about the gifts that God had given him, uh, but he he genuinely loved Christ and loved the church. And he, I'm not saying anything out of school or revealing any secrets, but he would frequently comment if asked about his biography that every single thing that Alistair McGrath wrote in the biography was 100% true. But I think he had some regret that uh, people miss the human nature of him, his the gleam in his eye, the laughter, his love for life and his love for people. I think one thing that struck me such a giant of a man who kind of seems like he's transplanted out of the 1950s and, and plop centuries later. He's had such a, a tenderness and patience with the ordinary person. So my, my job at one of the conferences was to kind of uh, be his chauffeur and to get him from place to place. And, you know, some 20 year old guy would walk up and say, Hey, Dr. Packer, I wrote a book. Uh, you want to write a forward for it? And most of us, you know, if, if we're not inclined to do so, would say, oh, yeah, I'd have to check my schedule. Or, I mean, he would stop and say, well, let me tell you some of the, <laughs> I mean, and here goes the 10-minute answer that uh, it's just indicative, I think, of his kindness and his compassion, his gentlemanliness. Uh, but at the root of it all, I think he was a man enamored by the beauty of Christ and never really got over the fact that he was a sinner saved by grace. So uh, what a privilege to what have a tribute to know him. Yeah. And what a, what a legacy to have your, your singular literary achievement. There are many, but uh, that will be remembered knowing God, uh, though all many will be remembered, but you know, to have that as your legacy in writing that you helped people know more about God, it, his, his attributes, his character, the works of salvation, history of redemption is is rich and that book is uh, i mean that that's one of the few books uh of our lifetime i guess that was right before we were born by a few years but that i really think people will be reading a hundred years from now it's it's that rich biblical simple yet profound and we we give thanks to god for that for his other works and for the life and ministry of dr j.i packer yeah.